Smyrna was the second city to receive a letter in the book of Revelation. In Acts 19, it suggested that this church was actually started by Paul on one of his many missions trips to the area. It was a city that was built upon the ruins of an old Greek city and was actually quite close to Ephesus, only 35 miles north, and it had a population of about 100,000 people at the time of the writing of the letter. But it was a church that experienced much hardship and persecution, particularly by the large influence that the Jewish people had in the city. And this can be seen even today with the region having so many synagogues throughout it. And this struggle and triumph is represented in the letter that is sent to the church in Revelations chapter 2, verse 6. Write this to Smyrna, to the angel of the church, the beginning and ending, the first and final one, the once dead and then come alive, speaks. I can see your pain and poverty, constant pain, dire poverty, but I also see your wealth, and I hear the lie in the claims of those who pretend to be good Jews, who in fact belong to Satan's crowd. Fear nothing in the things you are about to suffer. But stay on guard, fear nothing. The devil is about to throw you in jail for a time of testing. Ten days, it won't last forever. Don't quit. Even if it costs you your life, stay there believing. I have a life crown-sized and ready for you. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words, the spirit blowing through the churches. Christ's conquerors are safe from devil death. Yeah, so this is the second letter in uh, Revelation to the churches. The one that we uh, heard about last week, the letter to uh, the church in uh, Ephesus, um, talked about the need for those people to return to their first love. And I guess when we think of a first love, sometimes we have this concept of uh, the world is just wonderful. When you first come into a relationship with someone special... Um, I guess it's a bit like a scene out of Snow White. You know, the birds are singing and the butterflies land on your shoulders and the sun's always shining and the little animals pop out and smile at you and wave as you walk past. And we think, wow, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? Uh, maybe even a scene out of the movie The Three Amigos, for those who remember that, that movie where they're sitting around the campfire and all the little animals join in to sing as well. But uh, it can be that when we have uh, a relationship with someone that... Uh, if we're talking movie analogies, you're saying, well, Graham, you've got the wrong kind of movie here. It's more like a disaster movie or Jurassic Park. There's big creatures trying to eat me all the time and I'm always fearing for my life. Because sometimes things don't go as we planned. Sometimes life is tough. And this is the kind of letter that I really wouldn't want to receive, the letter to the church in Smyrna. And God is saying here, I see your affliction I know that things are tough. I know that there's poverty. Things are hard. I understand that. I get that. But then in the letter, in one version, he says, do not be afraid. And I want to pull a full, put a full stop right there. Do not be afraid. That would be nice. That would be nice. But it goes on to say, do not be afraid of the things you're about to suffer. So... I would hope it would say, do not be afraid because I'll look after it. I'll get the bad guys. I'll make sure everything's okay. Do not be afraid. It's all going to be good. But it says, do not be afraid of the things you're going to suffer. 
So God is saying, I see your pain, I see your suffering, I know life is tough, but it's going to get worse. Don't be afraid of the things you're going to suffer. But we're already suffering. Yeah, but there's more coming. There's more coming. It's the kind of letter you would want to sort of put aside with the bills and just sort of forget that it's there. But that's how life is, isn't it? Sometimes the road is really bumpy and the biggest potholes are yet to come. And that's what the letter to the people in Smyrna was all about. And as Christians, we can say, well... That's not how it's supposed to be. God, I'm following you. I'm a child of the king. I'm doing all I can to serve you and to live my life for you. And you're saying it's going to get worse. And our wrong thinking can be dangerous. Because it can cause us to think when there is affliction, when there is time of trouble, that maybe the Christian life, we're doing it wrong. There's something wrong with us. That because life is hard, I'm not living my life as I should for God. And it can cause wrong thinking and even dangerous thinking in that we think then, well, I've given it my best, it's not working, it's too tough, I'll quit. Or it can be dangerous thinking on the reverse. We might think, well, life is going really well. There's been no real difficult situations, things are going okay, therefore my Christian life must be going well too. And that's equally as dangerous because the circumstances in life aren't the barometer for our Christian life. If things are going smoothly, it doesn't mean our Christian life is good. That can put us into a false sense of security, thinking that things are okay, but we are not giving God the time we need. We're not growing. We're not developing in our relationship with him because things are okay. So therefore, a Christian life must be all right. I want to say something that perhaps is a little bit controversial. That is that I don't believe God's primary purpose is in rescuing. I don't believe his primary purpose is in rescuing. It's in redemption. Let me explain what I mean. You imagine that uh, there's a a young person who um, is in early 20s and living a bit of a wild life and has a few brushes with the law and uh, that parents are quite used to getting a phone call from the police or supporting this child in court and constantly bailing him out, constantly rescuing him from things. Or imagine, um, imagine a person who is uh, reckless with their spending and they're always getting in over their head and there's a lot of debt and they can't cope with that and they're forever talking with friends and family members and getting a bit of help with the finances, but never moving on themselves, always being rescued out of that situation, rescued again, rescued again, rescued again. But in neither of those cases, if those people, that uh, wild young person or the reckless person with their money, has a change of heart and something changes in their life, they get to the point where... They are redeemed from that matter and they no longer have to be rescued. So I think God's primary purpose isn't just to rescue, but beyond that is to redeem us. Now in the Bible, we see time and time again where God rescues the people. It happens. But we have the advantage of being able to flick from chapter to chapter and from book of the Bible to book of the Bible and even go to the back of the Bible and get the answers. 
And we can see that God is about redeeming. That all these little episodes where someone was rescued, it's about his overall plan of redemption. And there are times in the Bible where the people felt they weren't being rescued and are giving up on God. Well, God, we have this problem. We have this affliction. Where are you now? You haven't pulled us out of that. There must be no God. Or we can't see what God's doing. But we can see that bigger picture of redemption. And sometimes it's the same in our lives. Where it's a difficult day or a difficult set of circumstances. Or what we're going through at the moment is awful. And God's not plucking us up out of that. He's saying, stay strong. Be faithful. Don't give up. We're saying, okay, that's fine, God, but get me out of here. And we can miss that there's the bigger picture of redemption at work. But having said that, there are some things that can help us when these times of suffering come. And we all go through them. We all go through them. But uh, there's some things that can help us. The first thing is to realize that God didn't invent suffering. He uses it, but he didn't invent it. It wasn't his intention. And we know that because further in the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, it says that God will be with us and we will be his people. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old things will pass away. So that's where he wants to take us. He doesn't want that to be part of eternity. God didn't invent that. But even so, there are times when people want to blame God. Things aren't going well. Someone has to be blamed. Blame, of course, diminishes, diminishes responsibility. If I blame you for my problem, then I'm not responsible for that and I don't have to do anything about it because it's your fault. And we tend to do that with God, saying, God, there's difficult circumstances here. It must be your fault. But rather than blame God, look for God's purpose. He didn't invent suffering, but he uses it. Let's have a look at some verses on the screen now that remind us that God has a purpose for suffering. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. So we can rejoice in trials because they develop endurance in James dear brothers and sisters when troubles come your way and they will they will consider it an opportunity for great joy for you know that when your faith is tested your endurance has a chance to grow so let it grow for when your endurance is fully developed you'll be perfect and complete needing nothing further in James God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. It's worth sticking it out. And in 1 Peter 3, chapter, uh, verse, sorry, chapter 3, verse 14, 
But even if you suffer for doing what's right, God will reward you. So don't worry or be afraid of threats. And in verse 17, remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. And Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So there are many more Bible verses that tell us that God uses the suffering. He has a purpose and a plan for that suffering. When I look through the Bible, I can see there's a few different causes of suffering. One of those is that sometimes people suffered for following God. We might think of a few characters who went through hardships purely because they were diligently and faithfully doing the work of God. We think of someone like Noah who was following what God told him to do. And that can't have been an easy task, being mocked and ridiculed for uh, just following what he believed was uh, the right thing to do. Or Stephen in the New Testament who was martyred, who was killed for his faith, simply doing what God called him to do. There can be suffering at the hands of others. We think of Joseph and his uh, coat of many colours and his dreams, who was very intentionally turned upon by his brothers. And it wasn't his fault. It was his brothers and their jealousy and envy that caused that. So we can suffer at the hand of others. Sometimes we can suffer as a result of our own doing. And I think of King David. And we know the story of him taking another man's wife and killing that man so he could have that woman. And uh, the baby that they conceived together um, died. And it was a great cause of grief for them both. But that was suffering because of what he had done. And sometimes in the Bible we can see suffering because of circumstances. And we read of uh, long droughts and periods of famine and hardship because of what's happening around And when we have our own times of suffering, sometimes we think of, well, why is this happening? What is the reason? Is it that I'm simply following God's way and people are persecuting me for that? Um, Or is it because there's others who are jealous or envious? Or is it because I'm making mistakes? Or is it just that there's circumstances around? And it can be helpful to think through that and see where God's purpose is in those times of suffering. But if we get bogged down with the reason, we don't move forward. And I think regardless of why it is that we're going through a difficult time, the response has to be the same. That is to stay faithful, to endure to the end, to see what God's purpose in that suffering is for us, not to give up and to realise that there will be a reward, if not in this life, even in the next life. Stay faithful, one translation says, and you will not be hurt at all. By the second death. I think the second thing that helps us when we're suffering is to know who you are in Christ. Because intense times of suffering and hardship can cause us to doubt who we are, can cause us to doubt our faith, our purpose in life, our value to other people, and we feel worthless. Our suffering can mean that all we have and all we know is stripped away, like Job in the Bible. And all we have left is God. So we have to know who we are in him. A few weeks ago, I was at a committee meeting um, to do with an association I'm involved with up in Brisbane. 
And uh, the night before the meeting, I was meeting um, just for dinner with one of the committee members. And uh, he's a guy I don't know really well, but uh, a nice fellow. And it was good to have a chance to talk with him over dinner. Um, he grew up in the United States, came to Australia um, a number of years ago, married, has a family, and Australia is home. And um, I asked him about his family back in the United States. I said, do you, do you miss your mum and dad? And, and so on. He said, well, I've got to be honest, Graham, not at all. Not at all. I haven't been home since 2003. We have the occasional phone call, and that is more than enough. I said, tell me, what's the story? But he said, mum and dad are the most self-centred people I know. Life is all about them. As we were growing up in kids, if we wanted to join the soccer team or go and play a music instrument or learn a sport, it would only be if it suited them. They wouldn't go out of their way for us at all. If they wanted to go somewhere, we got dragged along. If they didn't want to go somewhere, we just stayed at home. All of their friends um, were, were to do with them and their benefit, and we weren't allowed to have kids come over because that was an interruption to their life and it was really really difficult they're very self-centered he said I love them dearly but they are very self-centered self-focused people and uh, as he spoke to me some more he told me that he and his sister were actually adopted so they're not uh, their natural parents and he said in a way I felt as though we were a fashion accessory that it was the thing to be married and have some kids. And when they couldn't have kids, they had to do something to fulfill that fashion accessory need. So they adopted my sister and myself. Um, and we were just an inconvenience to them. So I said, well, you know, in your adult life, have you had a chance to talk with uh, your parents about that? And he said, I raised it with them once many years ago and said it was very hurtful and very difficult um, you know, a, a up, upbringing for us. And uh, he said, Dad told me that it cost a lot of money to adopt myself and my sister and to bring us up and that he and Mum were disappointed that they hadn't got much out of their investment. He said, that's the last time we spoke about that. And I said, that's really got to hurt. How have you managed that? And he said, very simply, I know who I am in Christ. Now, I didn't know he had that depth of faith. I knew that he had a connection with a church somewhere. And uh, that really sort of caught me by surprise, I guess. It's that very simple statement. A very difficult life, a very strained life, this feeling of worthlessness. But he rose all above that because I know who I am in Christ. And I think if we're going through suffering and tribulation, we have to know who we are in Christ. Psalm 8, the writer talks about the magnificent creation that God has made, the moon and the stars that give God glory, how wonderful these things are. And I can imagine whoever wrote that psalm was probably sitting out on the field one night just gazing up at the sky. And he asked the question, who are we, God, that you would be even mindful of us and care for us in all of this creation with these little specks? And the response is, God, you've made us just a little bit lower than the angels and crowned us with glory to rule over your creation. In all of creation, you are the most important thing to God. And you have to know that. You have to know that in Christ, you are redeemed, you are with God, and that God loves you more than anything else. And if there are times of suffering, don't let those times erode that belief that you are important to God. 
that he cares for you. When we read through the letter to Smyrna, there's something missing that's in most of the other letters. If you read through, you'll see that God talks about something that the church in that area does well. But I have this against you. You're doing this really well. In last week, it was uh, the Ephesians. Uh, in Ephesus, you're doing all these wonderful works, um, but I have this against you. That doesn't appear in this letter. God doesn't hold our suffering against us. When we're going through difficult times and we can't see the way clear and we're not sure which way is up and which way is down, God doesn't hold that against you. He knows about it. He cares for you. But now is the time to build on that. Now is the time to know that you are important in God's creation, to know that he cares for you, to know that he loves you. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about the wise man and the foolish man. Wise man built his house on the rock, foolish man on the sand. If you don't know who you are in God now, when things are not too difficult, when the wheels fall off, then it's a bit hard to try and find out then. You have to invest in that foundation of your life. Know who you are in Christ so that you can stand strong. The third thing that helps in times of suffering is to look for the riches. In Revelation, God writes to the people of Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now, the town of Smyrna was quite a wealthy town. It was the centre of trade. And there was a lot of uh, riches in that town. But in this letter, God points out, well, you're in poverty. I know that and I understand that. But you're still rich. How are they rich? How are they rich? In Romans, we read about the riches of God's kindness, forbearance and patience, praise God. In Ephesians, we read about the riches of God's grace, the riches of his glorious inheritance. In Philippians and Colossians, we read about the riches of Christ and the richness of God's love. So why do you think the letter to the people of Smyrna specifically says, you are rich? I think that's because when we're in times of affliction, it can hide and mask what we have in Christ. We can feel poor and hard done by. The cry can be, woe is me. This isn't happening to anybody else. Everyone else has a better life than me. The people of Smyrna, they had riches all around them, but they didn't have any of that. There's nothing good about life. It's just all too hard. But in 1 Peter... Chapter 4, Paul writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So, affliction, difficulty, time, difficult times will come, and it does happen to us all. You've not been singled out for any reason. We have to realise that there are riches all around us. An author I was reading recently, Steve Maraboli, says that we can develop, in times of struggle, a victim mentality. And he says the problem with a victim mentality is that we forget to see the blessings of the day. 
because of this, our spirit is poisoned instead of being nourished. And times of affliction and suffering can do that. And we have to realise that there are riches all around us. But each day, God is doing something that can nourish us and make sure that we're not allowing our spirit to be poisoned. The fourth thing that helps us in times of suffering is to realise that we are the church. We are the church. We're not alone in suffering. Now this letter was written to a group of people, the believers in Smyrna, not to one individual person. God wasn't saying to this person, you are going to go through a time of suffering. He was saying, you collectively are going to go through a time of suffering. To those of you who are going through a hard time now, here this morning, remember that you are not alone. You are part of the body of Christ. People around you care for you and love you. But forgive them, forgive us, forgive me when we fail to see suffering and that we don't support you as you need. But the Bible encourages, stay faithful. Don't let your suffering pull you away from the riches of Christ or the promise of the victor's crown. And to those of you here this morning who are not particularly suffering in any kind of way, except maybe I'm speaking too long, <laughs> remember that there are others going through hard times. And don't be like the Pharisees who cross the road and walk past and ignore it. We are the body of Christ. If one member suffers, we all suffer. Don't sit back and say, the church should do something to help that person. The church is failing in its job. The church should blah, blah, blah. Because you are the church. And if you're pointing your finger at the church, you're pointing your finger at yourself. If you can see faults in the way that the church is failing to help those suffering, failing to support them, well, they are faults in you as well. You are the church. Be the church. But keep in mind too that your day of hardship will come and make sure that you're building on the rock. And finally, in times of suffering, look to Jesus. Pretty simple, isn't it? Look to Jesus. The start of that passage in Revelation, it says, These are the words of him who is first and last, who has died and come back to life again. They're talking about Jesus, aren't they? Jesus died and came back to life. He knows what it's like to suffer. He was suffering on the cross. And he could have been rescued. He could have been helicoptered out of there. And the rescuing would have ended his suffering, but it wouldn't have redeemed you. God cares about what we go through. and has the bigger picture that you can't always see. Stay faithful even to the point of death, and God will give you life as your victor's crown.